Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the ninth episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Richard Mulcahy's role in Easter Rising up to 1919. Before we begin, I want to reaffirm this channel's commitment to the Black Lives Matters movement. If you're in Chicago, you may have heard that the school board refused to take the cops out of schools and that we're still fighting to pass CPAC, which is the Civilian Police Accountability Council. The Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression is still leading the charge on that, along with a number of other organizations. And the call right now for CPAC is to really focus on your aldermen. And Chicago Alliance has a great resource on their website on who to, how to find out who your alderman is and when to call. They're trying to do these staggered calls to have the biggest impact. So keep an eye out on them. Also keep an eye out on Surge, Stand Up for Racial Justice. Um, they have a meeting on the 8th at 7 o'clock to review what CPAC is. Um, in terms of the school board, there's so much we need to do there. Step one, I think, at this point is to call and demand. We want elected members on the school board. Right now they're appointed by the mayor. Um, and so we need to kind of just cut, cut out her power if we want to see real change. So CPAC is still an issue, call your alderman. And then the school board is an issue, call your alderman, call the mayor, try to get those positions to become elected positions as opposed to appointed positions. Also on, on August 28th, Movement for Black Lives is hosting a national convention, which will be focused on celebrating black culture, black political power building, and uh, will release a public policy agenda that will set forth an affirmative vision for all black lives. So those are some of the events that are going on. There's so much going on. Please just follow, follow these groups. Check out our Black Lives Matters resource page on our website to find more groups and more initiatives to support. In the last couple of episodes, we've provided an overview of the events that led up to the Anglo-Irish War and the Anglo-Irish War itself. And so I want to spend the next couple of episodes delving into specific people and specific events because there's just so much to unpack um, within this conflict. So today we will be discussing Richard Mulcahy, the chief of staff of the IRA, and I'd say a bit of a controversial figure in Irish history. Why are we starting with Richard Mulcahy and not someone like de Valera and Collins? So the short answer is that everyone knows who Collins and de Valera are. Even if you don't know much about the Anglo-Irish War, you're going to know who those people are. You're not going to know who Mulcahy is necessarily or even Broda, or some of the other smaller figures. So I want to cast a light on people who made an important contribution to the Anglo-Irish War, but get overshadowed. Two, being chief of staff of the IRA, Mulcahy is in a fascinating position to provide a lot of insight into how the militant side of the IRA worked or didn't work, but also how he was also a member of the Dáil, so how the Dáil side worked as well. And since he was this figure that like Collins, like a lot of others, you know, wore three hats, two or three hats, you know, some militant, some civilian. He provides a really interesting perspective on how those two sides worked or didn't work and what the conflicts were and what the tension was and things like that. There's been a recent resurgence in the scholarship to try and parcel out what did Collins do, what did General Headquarters do? And being chief of staff of General Headquarters, 
Mulcahy is in the center of that resurgence, I think. And that's, again, that's also what makes him a really interesting figure, is that he worked really closely with Collins. He worked closely with Broder, not always well. And so again, you get this really interesting perspective of how did Collins work? How did Broder work? How did GHQ fit into these machinations that Collins had? What, how was Mulcahy trying to impose discipline on the IRA forces? And he's in the center of a lot of activity that's important to understanding the conflict. And the third reason, one of the things that draws me to him as a researcher, is that he provides a strange level of continuity from the Anglo-Irish War into the Irish Civil War. Because he holds the same position throughout the entire conflict. So he starts the Anglo-Irish War as Chief of Staff. When the Irish Civil War starts, he's still Chief of Staff. Collins is Minister of Defense. And then when Collins dies, Mulcahy takes that position as well, but he's still nominally the Chief of Staff. He tries to promote McCannon as Chief of Staff later during the Civil War, but people still think of him as the Chief of Staff. And so he provides this sense of stability, I would say, and continuity into the war and into the creation of the Free Irish State. So he's just very, I, I feel like he's an interesting figure that is at the center of a lot of what's going on, but he himself is often overlooked or downplayed um, for many reasons. Richard Mulcahy was born in Waterford in, on May 10th, 1886, to a conservative family. His father was a post office clerk who seemed to have two dreams for his children. They would either join the church or they would, they would join the post office. Um, and actually, four Mulcahy's sisters would become nuns, and one of his brothers would become a priest. Um, so one can imagine what those family reunions must have been like when his wanted posters started showing up during the Anglo-Irish War. Mulcahy was born into a low middle-class Catholic family. And so, like a lot of his peers, he is part of this bulging revolution in terms of like the Irish Catholics coming to their own within Ireland. Uh, we had talked about Daniel O'Connell in our first episode and what he did for, for Catholic emancipation, and the Irish Catholics want to take that further. They're starting to be able to do well for themselves. They can sit in Parliament. They want full equality, and they want full economic equality, which they don't have right now. Mulcahy's family is kind of part of that rise. He was educated at the Christian Brothers School in Waterford. The Christian Brothers was a dominant religious order in Irish education, and they indoctrinated their students with strong nationalism while also tying it to Catholicism. So uh, Mulcahy is a deeply, deeply, deeply pious man um, throughout his entire life. He ha he's very comfortable with the Catholic Church. He's very dedicated to the Catholic Church. And by our standards, I would say he's probably overtly devout, but in terms of 1900s Ireland, I think he's you know, somewhat typical. De Valera also was very devout and a very close relationship with the church, so like, it's not unusual. So he's very devout, but he's not overtly nationalistic at this point. Um, he does take a step closer to nationalism when in 1902 he starts attending Gaelic language courses, but it seems like it's more just a general interest in his, pa in his people's past and his people's culture, not necessarily a step towards radicalism at this time. He starts, I think he's like 16 or 17 when he starts working as an unpaid assistant in his father's post office. He's then promoted to telegraphist in the Bantry post office before finally moving to Dublin as a clerk in the engineering branch in 1908. And 1908 is a huge year for him in terms of radicalization. As soon as he enters Dublin, he continues his Gaelic language courses. He masters the language within a short period of time. Um, and throughout his life, he will constantly switch from English to Irish with ease. He joins the Keating branch of the Gaelic League, which, and quite interestingly, Broda was the president of the Keating branch, so that may have been when they first met. While he's in the branch, he also met Thomas Ashe and Liam Lynch, and interestingly enough, Geroid O'Sullivan, Diarmuid O'Hadderty, and Sean McMahon 
um, were all would all be members of General Headquarters, but they were also members of the Keating branch. So there should be some ties there. He began reading Griffith's United Irishman, which was a very short-lived newspaper created by author Griffith. And Griffith's goal was to raise nationalist aspirations. And Mulcahy, thinking back on Griffith's influence on him, called him our great teacher, the interpreter of the past, the pointer out of our resources, our guide. When the United Irishman went under, Mulcahy started reading The Republic, which was another nationalist newspaper, this time published by Bulmer Hobson and Dennis McCullough. But most important for him in terms of his future path as Irish chief of staff was when he joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It seems like it was also sometime in 1908. As we talked about before, the Irish Republican Brotherhood was a secret oath-bound society, which is interesting because the Catholic Church had actually said that that was sacrilegious and a lot of Irishmen had an issue with the IRB because of the secrecy and the oath and the oath aspect. Um, okay, if he had qualms, they didn't seem to last very long because he joins them. And he joins them because his friend Jim Kennedy, who was involved in the IRB in Dublin, uh, basically just convinced him, kind of like pushed him into it. But again, at this point, he's not overtly radical. He is supporting home rule. He wants to see home rule play out. He does believe in a strong Irish nationalism, but it also seems to be as much of an effort to just make friends and, and get out there in Dublin as it is to actually achieve full revolution. Bismol K would admit that he's a very shy and aloof person and he doesn't interact well with others, and that will not change throughout his entire life. He has very fond memories of it, and writing back on it, he seems to truly believe that there was a true brotherhood that was being made through the Gaelic League and later through the Irish Volunteers, and there seems to be really intense bonding on his part, at least. As we discussed in our very first episode on um, Easter Rising, the Home Rule Bill was being debated by Parliament at this point. The Ulster Irishman grow scared, so they create the Ulster Volunteers and their threatening violent rebellion should home rule pass, and then the rest of the um, Republican Irishmen grow nervous. The IRB respond first by starting to drill their men, and it seems like Mulcahy took part in this training and this drilling. And then the Irish Volunteers were created in 1913. Bayo and McNeil and Balmer Hobson and Mulcahy uh, gladly joins. Again, we talked about the events that led up to the Rising and the role the IRB played and all the complications that they brought upon themselves. Mulcahy didn't play a huge role in planning the Rising. He was assigned to Company C, 2nd Battalion Dublin, as a company signaler. He may have taken part in the Hall of Guns smuggling. It seems like he had been sent after they smelled guns in, and the police shot at the um, crowd that had gathered. He goes back and he retrieves some of the German Mausers that had been, and hid them on the grounds of a local Christian Brothers school. He was unaware or dismissive of the reports of the split between Pierce and the other IRB men and McNeil. He does seem to have been involved with Liam Lynch's efforts to map out the telegraph and telephone system and the city manholes, but he didn't seem to be aware that it was for like, an actual violent uprising, which is interesting because he was part of the IRB, but either he wasn't as involved um, to be trusted with that information, or he just, you know, no one bothered to tell him because he's just one member out of, you know, God knows how many, and Pierce and the others had enough to think about. He finally catches wind of what what is happening on April 15th when Sean McDemarta asks him about his maps and he tells him there's going to be a rise on, rising on Sunday. Mulcahy uh, takes a, w- a week to visit his family and go on a spiritual retreat. When he comes back, he goes to McDemarta and he commits himself to the rising and he's told that on Sunday, he and several other volunteers are going to be responsible for destroying the Howith Junction telegraph and radio lines. 
But then McNeil's counter order is released and it cancels the rising and it causes chaos. And Mulcahy tries to figure out what's going on and he runs into. So he finds Connolly and he asks Connolly, What are the orders? And Connolly's very testy with him. He's like, There's new orders, you'll get them. And so then he's so worried that he was indiscreet. And so he just goes home. And then the next day he goes back to Dublin and he's, you know, there's a lot of activity going on. And so he reports again to Matt DeMarta, tells him, you know, be ready to attack at noon. I was watching an interview with him that took place in uh, 1965, and he was very, very upfront with the, how chaotic the rising was and how he uh, didn't really know what was going on. He just kind of did what he was told at the time. So on Monday, he reports, and he's sent off with Patty Grant and Tom Maxwell to cut the telegraph and telephone lines at Haworth. But then the British forces surround Dublin, so he can't get back into Dublin. So he and the two guys, they, they wander, basically, the countryside for the rest of uh, Monday. And then on Tuesday morning, they run into Tom Ash's Fingal Brigade, and Mulcahy is made Ash's second in command. Ash was Mulcahy's exact opposite. Ash was born in 1885 to a farmer and wife in Lispool. He was a teacher by trade, spoke both English and Irish, and was said to be a tall, handsome, charismatic man. He, like many in his generation, believed firmly in returning Ireland to its Gaelic past. He was recruited into the Irish Volunteers in 1913 through friends he met in the Dale of Weed, and he joined a secret militant society, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, shortly afterwards. Because of his popularity and leadership abilities, he was given command of the Findle Brigade, which consisted of units from the following cities, Lusk, Scarries, and St. Margaret's. So he's very charismatic. He seems to be a natural leader, which of course is the opposite of Mulcahy, but Mulcahy seems to provide a more logical and disciplined approach to leadership, and the two worked very well together during the Rising. They reorganized the battalion into four equally sized sections. The sections would rotate their responsibilities with one foraging and defending the camp and the other three organizers needed to carry out their missions. Ideally, one section would serve as the advanced rear guard, another section would serve as the main body and include the commander and his battalion staff, and the final section would serve, serve as a rear guard. After they reorganized, they take the fleece barracks at the city of Sword, where they're also able to capture a bread truck and Donna Bate, destroying telephone lines and telegraph equipment and railroad tracks. Thursday, the, the troops are feeling a little bit demoralized because it's clear that no one else is joining them on the rising and whatever going on in Dublin, it doesn't seem good. But Ash encourages his men to keep fighting. So on Friday, they're marching towards Boren's town, but they realize that the police barracks in Ashbourne would threaten their line of retreat. So they change their target. The landscape favors the volunteers. The terrain north and south of the barrack was thick with hedgerows, and the volunteers used that as cover. One section positioned in front of the barracks, while the two others positioned themselves behind the barracks. Ash demanded the police to surrender and was met with gunfire. This led to a firefight that convinced Ash that the frontal assault would be useless and obviously bloody. So instead, Mulcahy run forward and take cover behind the hedges and fences that surround the barracks. And while Mulcahy provides covering fire, Blanchfield prepares an explosive and throws it into the barracks. The explosion causes a little damage, but it terrifies the police so much they surrender. Just as Ash is ordering the police to come out with their hands up, a convoy of cars come down the slain road. The convoys were reinforcements for the British troops in the barracks. They had heard about the attack, and they had been riding around the area trying to find Mulcahy and Ash's troops. They flanked the convoy on both sides of the road, for an hour and a half, the police and volunteers fired at each other, turning the quiet country road into a smoking, confusing hell where men on both sides were disoriented by the intense gunfire and screams of the wounded and the smoke trapped in the hedgerows. The volunteers had a near tragedy when they fired upon their own reinforcements, Mulcahy having to intercede to prevent uh, serious casualties. 
He then had his men fit bayonets and charge, quickly convincing the British to surrender and ending the Battle of Ashbourne. In total, Ash only lost one man killed and six men wounded. On the next day, which is Saturday, they received Pierce's order to surrender. They didn't believe the order, so I'm okay. Somehow, he ends up going back to Dublin, convincing the British forces there to let him talk to Pierce. Talks to Pierce. Pierce confirms the order is true. Then he goes all the way back to their position in the countryside and tells Ash that they need to surrender. Mulcahy would be interned at Nutsford before prison before being moved to uh, Frondosh, the University of Revolution, where he would first meet Michael Collins. Ash would be tried by court-martial and sentenced to death, but like De Valera, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. He was transferred to Dartmoor Prison. Upon arriving in Frondosh, Mulcahy would be named captain of D Company and helped implement the daily schedules and discipline among the men. Frondosh has a reputation of being the center of revolutionary activity, and you have men like Collins and Mulcahy, who would later become huge figures during the Anglo-Irish War. And so Collins, with help from other officers, implemented a, uh, a regime of terror, really, on the British prison guards. The Irish prisoners wanted to be treated a certain way, and if they weren't treated a certain way, there would be they wouldn't answer roll call, for example, or they wouldn't clean their cells. Like You start seeing some of the tactics that um, the IRA would perfect in the 1920s, and then they would reinvent again in the 1960s and 70s, are perfected here in Frondot, because Ireland has a huge, complicated history with prison life and protests within prisons that hopefully I'll get into in a different episode or article. I read some conflicting accounts of how involved Mulcahy was with Collins while in Frondosh. There seems to be enough evidence that he was involved with Collins rekindling the IRB slash the Irish Volunteers and his Supreme Council, and Mulcahy himself maybe even argued for a violent revolution following 1916. Later in life, Mulcahy would be rather vague about his role, which is not completely surprising considering everything that happened in Ireland after he was in Frondock and his own reputation. Both of his biographers, Marianne Valerius, hope I'm not butchering that, and Patrick O'Coyne argue that he may have had a, a bit of star struckness or he he wanted to impress those around him. Because he this jail radicalizes a lot of the IRA men. If they weren't radicalized during Easter Rising, they're definitely radicalized after their stint in prison. And you have someone like Collins, who is very, he's very charismatic, but he's also very, like, he's a bully, basically, and he roughhouses, and he's just this big, huge personality. And so there could be an argument made that at this point, Mulcahy's just trying to keep up with everyone around him. Um, he's He is a nationalist at this point, he is a bit of a radical at this point, and it just seems like he's, prison may have pushed him even further, whereas in later in life, he may have mellowed out, he may have just been one, like, I don't want to admit that, or I don't want to talk about that. But it, it seems like he was involved to a certain extent, because later on, after he's released from prison, he gets heavily involved with a number of initiatives that were started by the IRB. Mulcahy was released in December 1916, and he immediately threw himself into recruitment and rebuilding the volunteers, slash IRB, slash what will become the IRA. He becomes uh, officer commanding of Company C, of Dublin Brigade, which was his old unit, and then he's pulled into a provisional convention of the volunteers where they decided that they would host a national convention in six months' time and that they would need to replenish their stock of arms. Um, there was a strong IRB presence at this meeting with men like Broda, who had not yet resigned from the IRB, Collins and Lynch and O'Hagerty and Ash were also involved. Uh, Ash, at this point, is now president of the IRB. While Mulcahy was in jail, he lost his job at the post office so he's able to uh, use his free time towards the cause. And so he begins a tour of South Munster, fundraising for the Dale League and volunteering for Sinn Féin. 
while all this is going on, Sinn Féin is trying to build itself as the new party of Ireland because the Irish Parliamentary Party has just killed itself between supporting the Conscription Act, failing to get home rule. It's just in, in tatters. And so we talked about this, I think, in episode three. And we also mentioned Tom Ash's funeral. Mulcahy plays a huge role in um, organizing that. So after Tom Ash was released from jail, he begins touring Ireland and speaking for independence. And he's arrested again and he's sentenced to Mountjoy Prison. He demands status as a prisoner of war, not a common criminal. The British deny this request as they seem to always do and it always ends in tragedy. So he goes on hunger strike. He and I think 11 or 12 other men go on hunger strike. They try to force feed him. Britain has a really terrible track record with force feeding its prisoners and we'll talk about this more in our hunger strike episode but they do it poorly with tom ash and he dies the official reason is heart failure with complications brought on by fluids in his lungs but it's really because of the force feeding because they did it so badly so he dies on september 25th 1917 the irb slash volunteers want his funeral to be as spectacular as um O'Dovan and rosa's funeral so rosa was a huge irish revolutionary figure and that's where pierce makes his famous orientation calling for you know the martyrs of ireland to rise up and fight for liberty so they want to recreate this moment Mulcahy, who seems to have been secretary for the irb executive at this point but it's a little unclear he's charged of arranging the funeral and so ash's body is in city hall so Mulcahy is leading the detachment that's sent to city hall to, to pick up his coffin City Hall at this point is protected by police force, and so there is a risk that you're going to have a bloody confrontation. But thankfully, uh, William Cosgrave was able to convince the city treasurer to just let them in. It's going to be better that way for everyone. So they enter City Hall. Sean McGarry, who is now the new leader of the IRB, gives a eulogy. They pick up the coffin and they lead it. To, they take it to uh, Last Nevin Cemetery. Mulcahy may have actually been leading that procession. And he is seen standing by Collins' side as Colin gives his own oration over uh, Ash's coffin. And Colin says, There'll be no oration. Nothing remains to be said for the volley which has been fired is the only speech proper to make above the grave of a dead minion. There's a triple volley salute and the last post is played. So it goes off without a hitch. There's no violence. There's no death. There's no nothing. And a lot of that, I think, can be attributed to Mulcahy's um, organizational skills as well as uh Cosgrave's ability to get the city treasurer to just open the doors and, and not cause a scene. The Irish volunteers hold their national convention on October 27, 1917, the same day that the Sinn Féin is holding their convention. De Valera is voted president in both conventions, so he's now president of Sinn Féin as well as the Irish volunteers. They decide that Brodra will be chairman, Mulcahy is director of training, Collins is director of organization, Liam Lynch is Director of Communications, Sean McGarry is Secretary, Rory O'Connor is Director of Engineering. Later in the year, there seems to be some confusion here, O'Coin really points this out. Later in the year, Mulcahy is named Deputy Chief, Deputy Chief of Staff, with either Broda or Satz as Chief of Staff, and then later, he's, Mulcahy is promoted to officially Chief of Staff as the, as the volunteers grapple with the realization that they're building an army, not just a rebellious cohort. On April 10th, 1918, the British forced through a far more wide-reaching conscription bill, which caused the conscription crisis that Sinn Féin uses to their electoral advantage. At this point, the volunteers stay out of the conscription fight, but that doesn't prevent Broda from traveling to London on April 30th to exterminate the British cabinet. He would stay there for six months. 
It seems that Collins and Mulcahy were aware of this plot and helped organize it, even if assessing their actual support of the idea is hard to do. Mulcahy would end up finding 13 men to go assist Rhoda. Then on May 17th, De Valera and many other Sinn Féin members are arrested in the German plot. Collins and Mulcahy avoid arrest. Rhoda is still in London, trying to track down his cabinet members. So this basically leaves them in charge of a budding army. And uh, Mulcahy's newest biographer, O'Coin, makes the argument that this is when Rhoda's distrust of Collins and Mulcahy begins. And he stresses the role that the IRB had in creating GHQ and the army structure. And I don't know if I agree with him completely on the, the level of influence the IRB actually had, um, but there is no denying that majority of staff members are members of the IRB. don't know if that's really indicative of anything, though, because Broga was a member of the IRB. De Valera had to take note to the IRB to be part of Easter Rising. So I think at this point, you have a number of people who are, you know, quote-unquote IRB men, but does that really mean that there's, like, this coup or this attempt for the IRB to take control? I'm not 100% sure. I don't 100% buy it. And I don't know at this point how deeply Mulcahy was involved with that effort. Mulcahy's association with the IRB seems to be hard to assess because he did not write about it. He wrote about everything else. Mulcahy kept very extensive notes, and he would later publish his papers, and we'll get into that later. But he doesn't really talk about the IRB all that much, or so it seems. I think in terms of Mulcahy's role, though, he took his role as chief of staff very seriously. He begins to dress in military uniform, and he puts on an aloof, reserved, and formal attitude. His other biographer, Marianne Valuis, hypothesized that this was to hide his natural shyness, and he seems to be more comfortable being removed than trying to engage with people. And he really, at this point, we talked about this in our third episode, um, but he really stresses military discipline and organization. He himself is a workaholic, and he's just obsessed with his work, and he's, this is the way he is his entire life, and so he doesn't engage in the like the horseplay that Collins engaged with. He's not as charming as Ash, and this also kind of creates enemies for him later on in his life. But it enables him to really focus on just getting the Irish volunteers organized. He At this point, he's thinking of conventional warfare, not guerrilla warfare, and it's maybe the men on the ground that are forcing to change his mind, but he's thinking... In those terms, he's thinking, like, how do I organize these men? Okay, they're going to need officers. I need officers that I can trust. So he tries to enforce his top pits, basically. So right now, the IRA, they can vote for their officers. And Mulcahy's like, oh my god, this thing caused so much chaos. <laughs> I can only imagine how his eye would twitch at the thought of certain officers having command of certain units. So he tries to force um, IRB men in, or men that he can trust, at least. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. He's trying to tell the Irish volunteers, you know, don't be involved in politics. That's not our role. So Sinn Féin, they do Sinn Féin things. We're going to stay out of that. And he's telling his men, you know, just drill, 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 train, train, train. Please, for the love of God, just train as much as you can. Because we need, like, training is what's going to make the difference between victory and defeat. So his official position is that volunteers should stay out of politics. But then, over time, either because he's influenced by others like Collins and other IRB men, or just because he himself realizes that politics is just another form of warfare, and the relationship between Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers is so interchangeable. Like, in some ways they are one and the same, in other ways they're not. That doesn't make sense for the army men to stay out of the political fight. Mulcahy himself actually contests the Clontarf Sinn Féin district council seat in the general election, after Boland decides to switch from Clontarf to Rose Common, 
and he Mulcahy wins uh, by 2,746 votes, which is nearly 30% of the total votes cast. This suggests that there may have been some voter manipulation, um, since Clontarf was usually usually favored uh, unionist candidates. But either way, once he wins, he commits himself completely to this position, as he always does. He's appointed the Committee of Foreign Affairs, which helped lay the groundwork for the appeal made to the international community to recognize the Irish Republic. He's pre- present during the first meeting of the Dáil on January 21st, 1919. Both of his biographers reference that he helped draft the Democratic program, which we talked about in our fourth episode. It seems that Mulcahy and Rory O'Connor and a couple of other worked with the Labour Party, mostly with Castle Shannon and Thomas Farron and Thomas Johnson, to draft up the Democratic program. And it was Mulcahy who actually introduced it to the Dáil on, Jan- on the 21st. Which, which the doll approves, and then the next day the doll would vote on the first cabinet, which includes Mulcahy as Minister of Defense. If you want more details on that, it's our, you should listen to our fourth episode on the doll. So the doll meets on the 21st, and then it doesn't meet again until like April, after Dev is released from jail, but that doesn't prevent Collins and Broda and Mulcahy from pushing things through. So Collins is focusing on his, his bond program, and Mulcahy and the members of the Sinn Féin executive are... are trying to figure out how, how do we get the, the, the people who are arrested during the German plot, how do we get them out of jail? Do we have mass demonstrations? Do we have a violent response? What should we do? And so it seems like Bolin is serving up as, uh, is named the representative of Sinn Féin, and he's communicating with Mulcahy about their plans, and the ultimate decision seems to be with the volunteers and what's the best way of handling this. And everyone I've read, uh, Townshend, Uwe Lewis, O'Coim, they seem to suggest that this is the beginning of that slippery slope in terms of how do you separate civilian power from military power, and this is something that's going to haunt the IRA and the Irish Free State for a very long time. And it sets this precedent that the doll is going to follow whatever the volunteers slash army decides. By the time that the second Dale convenes, Mulcahy is a sitting member of Sinn Féin and the chief of staff of the newly Christianed Irish Republican Army with the support, with the heavy support of the IRB and Collins behind him. His staff at this point consists of Mulcahy as chief of staff, Collins as director of organization and adjutant general, Sean McMahon as quartermaster general, Rory O'Connor as director of engineering, and Dick McKee as director of training. Military-civilian tensions would plague Mulcahy for most of his life, Mulcahy was very defensive over his own role role in developing the army, and he was very protective of his men, even though he would also be just as vicious about the faults of the IRA. He did not appreciate when ministers tried to interfere, and yet, we've talked about this in many of our episodes, he truly believed that the army was beholden to the doll, and the army's mission was to protect the political development of the Irish Republic. So Mulcahy was never someone who would believe in a military uprising against the Irish Republic or that it was his place to install a military dictatorship. And this is something where O'Coyne and I heavily disagree later on in Mulcahy's career. I don't think he was ever trying to usurp anyone or install the IRB as like the political puppet masters or whatever. But I do think that he was also just... Civilians belong in the civilian sector, and yes, the military answers to civilians, but I know what I'm doing, Collins knows what he's doing, Broder does not know what he's doing. I don't know at what point he decides that Broder doesn't know what he's doing, but at some point he's just like, Broder does not know what he's doing, so Broder needs to stay in his lane, Dev needs to stay in his lane, Stats needs to stay in his lane. You do your thing, and I will do my thing, and I will do it well, and you just need to leave me alone. And that's kind of his, um, his attitude, I think, whenever 
civilians trying to get involved. But yet, at the same time, he was also, he would answer their questions. He would attend their meetings. He would put up with their doubts. He just wouldn't like it very much. And I think it's that kind of attitude that, at this point in 1919, his relationship with Broder isn't terrible. But I think it's that attitude combined with Broder's attitude combined with legitimate and made-up fears that just tear that relationship apart. And we'll talk about that a lot in our next episode on Richard Mulcahy, as well as on the episode on Capo Broder. So what are some of the takeaways that we can take from Mulcahy's early life before the Anglo-Irish War kicks off? I think the first thing to take away is that there's nothing unusual about Mulcahy or his upbringing or even where he ends up in terms of living in Dublin. Mulcahy seems to be a pretty standard example of a lower middle class Catholic Irishman. Even his his slow radicalization is not unusual. A lot of his peers have a very similar story. Some of his peers were actually more radical than he was by 1916. I think Mulcahy, from what I can tell, Mulcahy initially joins the nationalist movement because he does believe in an Irish nation and he does believe in an Irish Catholic nation, but he was he seems to have been very lonely. He seems to have been very quiet, very shy, very aloof, but determined and stubborn and proud person who had a hard time associating with others. And so if you give him a cause that everyone is united around and they're giving him these opportunities to prove himself and to form these relationships, I think he's going to jump on it. And I think it's really 1916 where he realizes that this isn't just a social club. This isn't just a game. I'm not playing with a rifle during you know trainings on Saturdays. I'm taking a step towards fighting for liberation, right? Or however you want to define that. Because I think we talked about in other episodes how that was really hard for a lot of Irish nationalists to define. And he accepts that. He decides that, you know, I'm going to take part in the Rising. And it was interesting because I, I saw, I was listening to an interview of him in 1965, and he makes a point in that interview to say, you know, Easter Rising was not planned at all. It was chaos. And it was funny because the interviewer actually asked him, like, is that how you want to leave your interview off? You want to say it was this chaotic thing? And he's like, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Um, but he also makes a point of saying that even if you didn't take part in the Rising, you can't be blamed for that because a group of men just decided that they were a rebel and, you know, you followed or you didn't. And he makes a point of, of mentioning McCurtain and Sweeney, McSweeney, and he was saying, you know, you have to look at what they were able to do because they didn't take part in the Rising. Like, the Rising was the stepping stone. And you need to look at what everyone was able to do, whether you're part of the Rising or not. And I thought that was an interesting point to make. He would only die like five years after the interview, so he's towards the end of his life. And I, I, I think about that, and I think about his decision to take part in Easter Rising, because for, for him, right, I don't think it was a clear decision. I think that's why he, t- he goes away for a week to think about it. Um, then once he makes that decision, though, he's, he's in all the way. And he shows a surprising amount of good tactical sense in the Battle of Ashbourne. I've read a couple, I've read a number of um, interpretations of that battle, and most people seem to agree that Ash provided the charisma and the leadership to keep the men together. But Mulcahy provides the strategy that enables them to take the barrets at Sword and Durbatton and Ashbourne. And then the prison, like I said earlier, prison's a little harder to kind of decipher what role he played in Collins's attempt to rebuild a cadre of officers within Front Gosh, but it's enough of a role for him to immediately jump into rebuilding the Irish volunteers and to immediately jump into IRB activity. And again, I think in prison, because I, I was reading some of his um, some of his memoirs and some of his notes, he talks a lot about 
he was in solitary confinement, I think, for a week or two after he was initially arrested. The starvation was really bad in prison. So I think there is a moment maybe where he maybe even had a doubt about his role in 1916. And then it seems like he interacts with Collins. He interacts with other people who are at the prison who are, you know, radicalized even further. And again, it seems like this pivotal point where he makes this choice. Like, I, I'm going to go all the way in. You know, we want re we want violent rebellion. All right, I'll lead it. You know, I mean, like I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. And so when he becomes chief of staff or assistant chief of staff or however that happened, he forces a discipline, militant nature on himself, and then he tries to force it on the Irish volunteers. And we'll talk about that a lot in the next episode where he, we uh, discuss his role in the Anglo-Irish War. But he's not playing around. And even though he's thinking conventional warfare, he's thinking in terms of warfare, where some people are still thinking in terms of like political reformation or political engagement. He's already made them that jump that we have to fight. And I, that could come from Collins. That could come from Broda. Because Broda was off in London ready to assassinate freaking British cabinet members. <laughs> I should, I'll spend more time on that incident in the Broda episode. Because I think it's something worth um, unraveling a little bit. And the Irish Nation Lives on YouTube has a great episode about that um, plan, that plot. I don't know what you call it. Um, so I think, again, he's surrounding himself with militant men and for whatever reason that is what calls to him and not so much the Sinn Féin stuff because he does become a member of Sinn Féin um, and he becomes very involved with Sinn Féin but his calming seems to be militant in nature. So I think that wraps up McKay's role in Easter Rising up to 1919. Next episode we'll discuss his role um, in the Anglo-Irish War and we'll talk, uh, we'll focus a lot on how he tried to develop a congressional army within the guerrilla movement and his fraying relationship with Broda um, and his growing closeness with, with Collins. Thank you for joining us. You can find our episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. If you engage with our episodes on those platforms, subscribe to us, give us a review, you know, rate us, anything to help uh, spread the word. You can also follow us on Twitter at AOASYMWarfare. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.